Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to What's Next in Syria, Captagon and Assad's booming drug empire. Please welcome Nicole Robinson, the Heritage Foundation Senior Research Associate for the Middle East. All right. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome uh, to a very special public program today at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, before we get started, I just wanted to remind everyone that this session will be recorded and it will be archived on the Heritage website. So if you want to revisit the discussion today or send it to a colleague, maybe, uh, you can do that at your own convenience after it's uploaded. So the topic of today's discussion is on the growing threat of Captagon a highly addictive narcotic substance that is not only fueling a widespread drug epidemic in the Middle East, but is also turning Syria into a narco state run by close associates of the Bashar al-Assad regime in Syria. Captagon is an issue that is just now getting attention, but it needs to be taken seriously with real policy outcomes. So with that, I'm super honored to kick off our discussion today by introducing our keynote speaker, representing Arkansas's 2nd Congressional District, French Hill. So in addition to being a member of the House Committee on Financial Services, Representative Hill serves on the Congressional Oversight Commission to monitor the Treasury's response to COVID-19 and is one of the two congressional representatives to the United Nations General Assembly. Over the past few months, Representative Hill has been urging Congress to look closely at the Captagon trade and its links to the Bashar al-Assad regime in Syria. So this makes him a really special guest for today's discussion. So before I turn it over to him, I just wanted to briefly give a preview of today's event. So after Representative Hill's remarks, I'll have our panelists join us on stage. I'll introduce them uh, before we get into the discussion and leave an opportunity for question and answers at the end of the program. So with that, I'll turn the podium over to, to uh, Representative Hill to get us started. Thank you. Well, good afternoon, and it's great to be back at uh, Heritage. This is a place that's been a second home for me for many, many years, going back to the 1980s when I was a uh, author of a chapter in Mandate for Leadership, so that dates me, but it's always a pleasure to see Heritage do good work. Nicole, thanks for the invitation and the introduction for being here, and a particular thanks to Carolyn Rose at New Lines, who's done an outstanding job, and I think raising the attention that Captagon uh, deserves. And it's certainly uh, very, very important that Captagon's gone from relative obscurity a year ago uh, to see more think tanks, uh, more government action, more media interest in this topic. We all know that back in 2011, Assad committed to burn his country rather than submit to a more open society. In addition to regularly committing war crimes against his own citizens, the Assad regime in Syria is now becoming a narco state. Narcotic production and trafficking in Syria and its neighbors have become more expansive and widespread. The current epicenter of the drug trade is in territory controlled by the Assad regime. These drugs not only cripple local populations, serving to undermine families and local communities, but they also serve to fuel hostility and finance the Assad regime and Iran-backed groups in the region. While the impact of the drug trade was localized a decade ago, it's since grown to serve as one of the main drivers for the ongoing conflict with its terrorizing transnational tentacles reaching out 
from its hub in the Levant across the globe. The United States government and our partners must do all it can and as, group, as a group to disrupt this industrial level of drug production currently taking place in Syria. If we don't take that action and we permit Assad to continue to become a narco leader in addition to a war criminal, the drive, this will drive the ongoing conflict, provide a lifeline to the extremist groups in Syria and permit American adversaries such as China, Russia, and Iran to strengthen their engagement there, posing an ever larger threat to Israel and stability and partners in the region. To this end, last year I introduced H.R. 6265, countering Assad's proliferation, trafficking, garnering, garnering, garnering of Narcotics Act, or CAPTAGOD. This bill is simple, and it requires the United States government to develop an interagency strategy to disrupt and dismantle narcotics production, trafficking, and the affiliated networks linked to the Assad regime. I introduced this first as an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Bill in 2021. And in my view, the idea was too new to really gain uh, trust and broad support in last year's NDAA uh, debates. So it didn't make it through that process unscathed. But we did get the uh, hook of report language in last year's NDAA on this as a challenge. However, it allowed for us to get the principal committees on both sides of the hill to work together and narrow down language that we were all comfortable with, and that's the bill that I've introduced as a standalone measure. The bill passed as an amendment to the NDAA in the House this year, and we now have uh, conversations between the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House and the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate that this is a priority from the Four Corners uh, leadership for this year's conference. We've also seen in a recent letter from ranking members McCall and Risch that they sent to Secretary Blinken regarding required reporting of Assad's sources of income and net worth, which we all know has increased due to his leadership, participation, and ownership of the Captagon production ring in Syria. Passing my bill should be an easy first step in a much longer battle to bring peace and stability to Syria and the region. I introduced this bill with my friend Brendan Boyle, Democrat from Pennsylvania, who co-chairs the House Syria Caucus. My office has worked closely with Mike McCall's team on House Foreign Affairs on getting it through a markup in that committee, which we're happy to see will take place this Thursday. I also recently led a letter to Secretary Blinken requesting that the administration's review if in fact Syria meets the criteria of, quote, a major illicit drug producing country, close quote, or a major drug transit country, close quote, under the Foreign Assistance Act. I was joined with Senator Roger Marshall of Kansas, uh, who has the Senate companion to the uh, bill that uh, Brendan and I have introduced in the House. Roger joined in this letter and we are asking the secretary to look at section 706 of the Foreign Relations Authorization Act that requires the president to submit an annual report that identifies each country determined by the president to be a major drug transit country or a major illicit drug producing country. In its most recent report, the White House did not list Syria among the 22 countries. Now, maybe that's because they didn't know the definition of Captagon a year ago. But there's no excuse this year, I think, due to the work of 
many across the city and in the State Department, Homeland Security and others, I think people understand what Captagon is, the scope of it, and the interdiction and the public source record of uh, its distribution and production. So that Syria was not listed among the 22 countries, in my view, was a mistake. If a country is designated as having failed demonstratively in its counter-narcotics commitments, the United States must cease providing certain categories of foreign assistance to such country unless the president determines the provision of such assistance is vital to U.S. national security interests. This prohibition does not affect narcotics-related assistance or humanitarian assistance. There's no doubt we believe Syria meets the designation, and we await the State Department's response to our letter. This is an area where the United States government should lead. Yesterday, I was in New York, and I met with Delphine Schantz in New York, who's the director of the UN Office on Drugs and Crime. I was very pleased to see in their most recent uh, report, their 2022 report, that UN, UNODC states the conflict in Syria has, quote, bred conditions conducive to the illicit drug trade, close quote. And the use and trafficking of amphetamines like Captagon dominate Europe and the Middle East. And we've gone at the United Nations from essentially no mention of Captagon a year ago to significant descriptions in their report this year. So we have to work together in Congress to call attention to this crisis, and we've got to work together as the United States government in a halt and an all-of-government approach to counter it, interdict it, and stop it, or we're going to continue to fuel uh, misery and mayhem in the Middle East. Um, so in conclusion, I would say uh, we know Bashar al-Assad, his Iranian co-conspirators, and his army are war criminals, not to mention being backed by currently the, the world's largest war criminal on the planet right now, Vladimir Putin. But not many people are aware of the fact that uh, Assad, having murdered all the people that he has in his own country, is on his way to becoming the world's largest drug kingpin. I hope you have a great discussion of this important topic. Look forward to Heritage's engagement on it and uh, everyone in the community, because this is one we need to do and do right, because to do it wrong continues to see the war in Syria fueled uh, by uh, billions of dollars of revenue coming in to the country under the hands and control of Bashar al-Assad. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Uh, thank you, Representative Hill, for those very insightful remarks. Um, I'm just going to invite our panelists today, uh, Ms. Caroline Rose and then uh, Dr. Mohamed Bakar-Gabais, uh, to the stage, and we'll get started. So we're going to get started today. Uh, I just wanted to welcome our two panelists for today, Ms. Caroline Rose and uh, Dr. Mohamed Bakar-Gabais. Uh, so before we get started, I want to just give a little bit of a background on um, their experiences. So. Starting with Ms. Caroline Rose, um, she is works at Newslight Institute. Just recently published a report on Captagon. Um, you can find those actually outside on your way out um, in there. And she is uh, here with us today just to talk about Captagon. And then with uh, Dr. Mohammed Bakar Gobais. Uh, Dr. Gobais is a um, cardiac surgeon in um, Harvard Medical School. He also does a lot of work on Captagon. Um, yeah, so we're really excited to have both of them today, and we'll just kind of get started, if that's okay. Uh, so just starting over with you, Dr. Gabais, I know that you recently, uh, I know that you recently completed a trip to northern Syria. 
Uh, what are you seeing? What sort of discussions are you seeing on the ground with Captagon, with U.S. engagements? Um, anything on that for us today? And thank you all for coming. Thanks so much, Nicole, uh, for your nice introduction. I'm not a surgeon, just for full disclosure. I'm an intensive care doctor, but uh, I think one of my colleagues was a surgeon with that we're discussing downstairs. Um, 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 but um, either way, um, again, thanks for hosting this great event. This is a very important and timely topic. Um, I think um, I think the Coptagon um, issue is just one of many. Um, I think consequences of, of you know the long term or sort of um, you know chronic um, um, struggle that that you know Syrians have been facing um, for the last. 11 years, um, and I do think from the policy standpoint, it, it, it is a um, sort of a default um, um, result of uh, you know, lack of a meaningful, uh, I think, policy from, you know, from, from, the, from the international community, of course, the you know, leadership of, of the United States um, government as well. Um, um, I think, you know, having Syria um, being in the back burner, if you would, you know, of the of the U.S. foreign policy, um, has resulted on this, you know, um, uh, crisis lasting for for you know for this many years. And I think the Coptagon um, issue is just again one of many sort of wake up call, if you would, to what has gone wrong, you know, on Syria. And um, I, again, I I appreciate. The leadership of Congressman Hill and Congressman Boyle on this very, I think, um, um, critical um, issue that will, um, you know, will be evolving if we don't make it, you know, make make a stop to it in the very soon um, um, future. In terms of my my visit, um, you know, to to the uh, to the region, um, you know, the average Syrian has really been. You know, very frustrated of what's you know what has been um, um, you know happening in terms of you know attention to you know their daily um, struggle. Of obviously, you know the economy, you know and the inflation and, and all the all the um, uh, negative consequences you know of of the Ukrainian um, invasion by Russia and of course COVID before has its own impact. But at the same time, the average Syrian has really uh, been affected. Um, gratefully, um, um, or greatly, I guess, um, you know, from from the from the uh, conflict, um, um, you know, insecurity um, 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 on all levels, food for sure, and other and other aspects. Um, um, you know, people, I would say, you know, the, the you know, walking in the streets of, of northern Syria. Um, you know, when people see uh, or know that you, you know, you have a sort of a U.S. Um, link, you know, or relationship, they, they look at you, you know, as a very, you know, um, um, sort of an impactful um, individual, and you know, they, they, they sort of, I think, give you that look that, you know, what, what are you guys waiting, you know, for, for, you know, leadership? Um, you know, people do believe that the U.S. can do, you know. You know, is capable and 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 um, you know will be in the best national interest for the U.S. to be engaged more, um, you know, in securing the communities, you know, in um, that are outside of Assad control, 
area for sure. Um, the, the community in the north, um, you know, trying to survive, um, I would say, again, you know, on, on, on different venues. Unfortunately, Captagon, as you know, Congressman Hill has alluded to, has been also one way for some, you know, some actors to survive. You know, oftentimes, you know, the, the you know, bad actors, unfortunately. You know, um, war. You know, war. Um, uh, uh, you know, um, masters, uh, pretty much. And you know, in, in all part of Syria, in the regime-controlled, obviously, area, that's where the manufacturing, you know, take take place typically. But also smuggling around the other regions of Syria. Um, so, um, um, you know, th again, people look um, up to the U.S. to be, you know. To put Syria on the you know on the front burner uh, on all levels, I think supporting the communities, um, the civil communities you know within the northern region, would be sort of the simplest you know the simplest um, straightforward policy that that you know um, the free world can adopt to support um, you know youth, democracy loving um, communities, and um, um, you know just flourish that idea that people have dreamed one day to have, as you know, Congressman Hill again alluded to 11 years ago, the people of Syria tried to, you know, tried to live their dream. And, uh, the, you know, um, I feel like um, they, there's an opportunity still and up until, up until today for that to still happen and supporting them, um, you know, on, on all levels will, you know, will, will, will get us there. It's really helpful and you know you touched a little bit on U.S. engagement in the region and I wanted to just discuss briefly the multiple actors that are in Syria right now right Turkey Iran Russia they've been trying to restart a peace the peace process so-called Astana peace process um, obviously there was a visit last week um, of Turkey in, in Tehran so from your perspective why should the United States still care, care about Syria um, what does it say about these multiple actors being in Syria and sort of the uh, situation on the ground there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's, you know, that summit that took place in Tehran is, again, is one indicator that um, the U.S. leadership um, on Syria is lacking. I think, you know, the regional actors, um, you know, be it uh, Iran and Turkey and, you know, the other actors like Russia, of course, with its huge you know, um, presence inside Syria, um, you know, are really the main players you know, on the you know, on the ground, and they they were negotiating sort of you know, like very tactical you know, um, um, to the, to the point of cross borders, you know, or, or um, you know, um, presence of their you know military uh, vehicles and, and other things uh, on the ground, and and they have every every single country of those countries have a lot of leverage. And you know they have been using that leverage, as we've you know, we've seen in the cross-border um, uh, resolution voting in the UN. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, we eventually, you know, because of Russia's, um, you know, influence and again its leverage in Syria, they were able to, you know, force their their version, um, you know, on, on the whole UN Security Council, which is you know the the highest sort of um, you know. Um, um, International body that's supposed to supposedly securing the, you know the the you know the um, um, regulations around you know, around the world. So, so I, I do think um, you know, at the same time the, I think U.S. has you know um, 
you know, of course, troops, you know, in the northern east uh, part of Syria. But unfortunately, we, I think we have lost uh, leverage somehow with sort of the status quo, if you would, or, or sort of you know, lack of policy, which have been unfortunately the, I think, the, you know, the, the stigma for, for you know, U.S. foreign policy in Syria. Because of that, you know, despite our troops' presence on the ground, we really don't have that much leverage as much as we should. And I think there's a huge um, lost opportunity there that, that can be uh, turned around by more engagement against supporting the local uh, communities, strengthening um, sort of, you know, um, a unified, um, um, you know, chain of command for, for, for the regional uh, communities, um, you know, uh, will, by, will by default, you know, sort of kick, you know, kick away all them, you know, um, um, you know, bad actors like Al Qaeda's um, ideology, other extremist ideologies. Of course, Iran presence. Again, speaking of you know the summit, Iran presence has really flourished uh, in Syria, and Captain Gun is only again one aspect of Iran's um, you know um, uh, influence in Syria and how they of course feed their own economy and you know, their own sort of killing machine elsewhere through the Captain Gun trade in Syria. So. Again, the U.S. U.S. leadership is, is is missing big time. Yeah, and sort of to uh, to add on to that, you know, Captagon is obviously a very big issue that's started just starting to get uh, attention. And how do you think that Captagon is a good way for the U.S. to remain engaged, or at least re-engage in Syria or in the region writ large at this point in time? Yeah, I mean, I I think um, you know, as we, we are learning again, we're scratching the surface. Uh, as we discussed earlier, I think you know, Caroline's work and you know and her colleagues, um, you know, is fabulous in really understanding that you know the the size of of this of this um, um, trade. I, I think um, you know it's it's a huge um, you know um, a channel of of um, of support to the Iranian and Assad regimes. Um, Assad obviously is an enabler for Iran's in the region. Uh, if we want to, you know, to um, 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 impact Iran's influence in the region, uh, Assad is, is where, you know, is the way, you know, is where we should we should start. Same as Russia, as, as we have, you know, you have learned the hard way that, you know, Syria's play, playbook have have um, um, been copied in Ukraine, and you know, if if any, the main the main ally for Russia in the region is Assad. So um, um, I. I, I I think Captagon again is is how Assad is surviving the sanctions. Um, you know, as we, we again we're learning, the Captagon trade is really run by the close circles of Assad himself and his family. Um, so, and they are the ones who are targeted, you know, by sanctions, uh, not the average you know Syrian citizen. So they, they those some people those same people who are being sanctioned are finding ways. Around that, and the Captagon is one way for them to escape sanctions, to survive, so they can again be enablers to Iran and Russia, and um, to sort of you know uh, continue the, um, if you would, lack of cooperation with the UN resolutions to really end this conflict in Syria. The only way for Assad to come to the table is really to cut all the you know supporting channels for them to come to the table to only negotiate in, you know, settlement, not really, you know, to topple the regime or anything, but they won't because they have ways, you know, to survive. And Captagon is, is again, we're learning, it seemed to be one of the main, you know, um, um, 
you know, sub, you know, uh, chains, um, you know, um, chain of supplies that Assad is using to survive. So I think um, by you know adopting strategy to cut that um, trade and you know manufacturing, again, beside of course the, the you know the negative health subsequences um, on the youth and, re and the region, of course, you know, the, our allies, Jordan, uh, we've learned, you know, Jordan, uh, um, we are learning even more has been impacted big time by, by, by this, um, you know, trade and, of course, other other countries in the region and maybe in Europe as well. So I think, um, you know, the more we sort of observe and not intervene, I think the more we will, you know, we will live, you know, uh, uh, with consequences of this in the future. I think that's really helpful and um, thank you so much for those insights and I just wanted to highlight Caroline here. Um, so she wrote a very extensive three-year report study on Captagon. I mentioned it brief, briefly but it's out, outside if anyone's interested. Uh, really awesome. I, I was just starting to get interested in Captagon myself and then she publishes this wonderful report that gives a very detailed um, look at Captagon, its networks and its trade. So uh, Caroline just turning to you, I know we've talked about Captagon, it's got a you know, a weird name. Some people, when I mention it, don't really know what it is. So if you just want to outline for the audience here in the room and then virtually sort of what is Captagon, you know, and why is it so damaging, not only for Syria, but also for the region, um, other parts of the region? Absolutely. Well, first off, thank you so much uh, to you, Nicole, and also to the Heritage Foundation for, for hosting us. Uh, this is a really great opportunity to discuss not only the trade itself, but also, of course, the geopolitical and security effects and health effects in the region. And I also want to thank um, for having us both here to, to, to really address that health side and human security side of the coin, which I think is very often neglected in the discussion about Captagon. Uh, now, uh, my journey with Captagon began over three years ago. Uh, I, like many, did not know what Captagon was. Uh, again, this was a this was a drug that I was not very familiar with, and and kind of stumbled into accidentally, to really measure and assess the relationship between the trade and at the time the Islamic State. And throughout this journey of researching this, uh, along with my co-author, who I would be remiss to of course mention, uh, Alexander Soderholm, uh, who is in Lisbon and hopefully watching somewhere in, in, in Portugal. Uh, but uh, we, we really did assess this relationship with the trade and the multiplicity of actors in Syria and in the Middle East at large. And around 2020, 2019, 2020, we started to see signs of state level participation and complicity in the Captagon trade. Uh, in addition, of course, to participation with a number of uh, non-state actors as well. And uh, really, what's what's very fascinating about the Captagon trade and how Captagon has evolved uh, is, is this very winding road. In, in the 1960s, uh, Captagon emerged on the licit pharmaceutical market uh, produced by the German pharmaceutical company called Degusa AG. And Degusa produced Captagon with the formula of phenethylene to essentially address a number of attention deficit disorders. Sometimes it was prescribed as a weight loss uh, substance. And again, it was sold and it was consumed uh, in an illicit manner. Uh, in the 1980s, uh, it was listed by the World Health Organization. And then of course, it slowly died on the licit market and transitioned into an illicit substance where it was very popularly produced by a number of ex-Soviet um, and uh, Bulgarian and, and Balkan factories. Uh, then, of course, in the early 2000s, it shifted to the Middle East, 
particularly to Lebanon and Syria, where, of course, we've seen the trade thrive today. Now, of course, in the context of Syria's power vacuum, the trade has been able to, of course, exploit a number of different security environments, as well as exploit users and grow its consumer base. Uh, there are many civilians and who are dealing with trauma, who are dealing with the financial collapse, who are dealing with a number of challenges, and Captagon has been seen as a useful substance that helps them deal with that trauma, with that euphoric rush. It also, of course, helps stave hunger. So if you're waiting in a bread line or if you're facing widespread food insecurity, Captagon is a very useful substance to have. If you are working two different jobs, if you need to work a night shift, if you are a student studying for your exams, or for any reason, if you need to stay up for all hours of the night, Captagon, those amphetamine properties will, of course, get you through that. But I would like to note that the Captagon of today is not the Captagon of yesterday. Uh, it's not the formula that we saw in the 1960s produced by Degusa AG, nor is it really the Captagon that was illicitly produced in the Balkans in the 1990s. This is a completely different formula, which is why when I like to refer to Captagon, I usually refer to it with a lowercase c rather than a capital C, because that capital C denotes that, that old commercialized Captagon, the phenethylene formula. Today, the Captagon formula is whatever the producers want it to be depending on wherever they are, with whatever resources they have, whatever cutting agents or tableting machines they have, access everything. Uh, and because of that, we've seen with the limited laboratory analysis that has been conducted, some very dangerous Captagon um, chemical compositions. Uh, anything that, of course, involves uh, caffeine, quinine, pseudoephedrine, uh, uh, sometimes toxic levels of zinc and, uh, and, and copper uh, with a number of other cutting agents that are quite concerning from, of course, a public health standpoint, but also from a larger human security standpoint. Uh, and again, there's no regulation, whether it's state or non-state actors, uh, there's no way to control what these producers are putting in. Now, of course, who it's trafficked by, we've started to see evidence of state complicity and direct participation in not only trafficking Captagon, but also producing it. And I know that we're going to talk a bit about that and, and, of course, where some of these factories are located. But this has been a trend and a concerning development that we've seen on the rise since really 2019, 2020, that has put Captagon not only just on the map in Syria as an industrial-sized trade, to watch and to monitor, but also a transnational challenge that is present in both the Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf at large. And this is a trade that is expanding. It is something that is uh, very sophisticated, very advanced. It is constantly evolving. And the traffickers and the producers, they're smart. They see what other countries in the region are doing to restrict the trade, to disrupt the trade, and they're adopting new practices. So it's extremely, I couldn't agree more with you in that it's extremely important for the United States, for policymakers to look down the horizon to really forecast what's going to happen next with the Captagon trade in order to stay ahead of the curve. Yeah, and that's a great segue into my next question, which uh, is what are the connections you've seen between the Bashar al-Assad regime and Captagon? I know that a German investigation and then also your report touched on this, there are extensive links between uh, the Captagon drug trade in Syria and the Bashar al-Assad regime. So what are those links? Yes, so when we published the report back in April, 
one of my biggest wishes was that it would inspire and build off of and hopefully spark more work investigating state and non-state ties to the Captagon trade. And so far this year, I've been absolutely amazed by some of the work that's been able to be produced. Der Spiegel came out with a fantastic report. Uh, there was a re recent Italian investigation on Captagons, uh, particularly the Port of Salerno seizure back in 2020. Uh, Core Global, uh, they do amazing work on Captagon. The New York Times did a great investigation. So I encourage, in addition to, of course, my report, there's a lot of wonderful work out there um, and a lot of really great voices that are crucial to listen to on this trade. Uh, now, you know, of course, in exploring the definitive ties that exist, the evidence, or at least I would say the building evidence that there is with state direct links to the Captagon trade, uh, there's no, you know, magic receipt there's no, you know, order or direct instruction that exists from Bashar al-Assad all the way down to some of these traffickers. Uh, but there are, of course, a lot of important signs uh, that are very vital to read in between the lines that show state complicity and participation in production and, and smuggling. And I think one of the biggest telltale signs thus far has, of course, been the use of the port of Latakia, which is an exclusively state-owned and accessed port uh, that can, of course, support some of the industrial size shipments that we've seen pop up all over the Mediterranean Gulf over the past few years. And this has been extremely important to watch. We've seen uh, throughout Southern Europe, the port of Constanta, the port of Salerno, the port of Piraeus, uh, and a, a, quite a few other ports that I, I'm likely forgetting, but again, all th strung throughout the, the Southern Med. Uh, also, of course, uh, the use of Libya, the use of uh, ports across northern Africa, but also African ports along the Red Sea, as well as um, some other locations, for example, Malaysia's port of Klang. Uh, also, we, we saw uh, the likely use of Pakistan as a transshipment route for, for Captagon, the port of Gwadar. Uh, again, this is constantly the map of Captagon and the map of transshipment sites. It's, it's constantly evolving. And uh, again, these are with in order to do this, in order to accomplish this, you do need to have a level of state access and complicity in order to accomplish these shipments of these size. Uh, we've also, of course, we've we've identified large scale Captagon manufacturing centers, many of them former pharmaceutical centers during Syria's heyday as a pharmaceutical hub um, in the 1980s, 1970s. Uh, and those are likely, of course, being used to produce Captagon in just very impressive sizes. And then, of course, we have the fourth division's involvement with the Captagon trade, guarding these facility, facilities, helping direct these manufacturing operations, and then notably helping facilitate Captagon throughout overland and maritime routes um, outside of Syria. And it's notable that we've seen a huge uptick in clashes, violent clashes, uh, between Captagon smugglers and the security forces of neighboring countries, particularly with Jordan. And uh, certainly they're, they're using not only just state aligned, um, but also state supported equipment. Uh, and also, of course, they're, they're directly tied to many of these actors that are affiliated with the Syrian regime. Uh, Bashar al-Assad's brother, Maher, for example, uh, you know, the, the commander, the head of the 4th Division, is closely tied not only just to the Captagon trade, but to specific Captagon production sites that are, of course, uh, found in regime-held areas. 
And I think that that, of course, that's something definitely to be explored and to be monitored uh, by the United States and its partners. Yeah, and that's a great segue into my next question is, you know, what should the U.S. be doing on the issue of Captagon? Obviously, there's, I mean, the, the trade itself is very extensive. The networks are large. You have geopolitical challenges. What do you think the U.S. can do to combat the issue of Captagon? Well, I've been extremely encouraged by this, the past two years and that really I think the policy community has been woken up um, with, with the Captagon challenge and has been recognizing its geopolitical security and healthcare effects. Uh, and I think that, of course, uh, as of Representative Hill mentioned, uh, this push to adopt an interagency strategy is incredibly important, not only as it's seeking to monitor the Captagon trade, but also to promote accountability. I think that that's such a huge key element of all of this is to continue to shine a light on these connections, to shine a light on the healthcare effects, shine a light on these clashes and potential state involvement, um, whether it's the Fourth Division, Hezbollah, and other, other Iran-aligned actors, because these are all adversaries of the United States and its, and its partners in the region. So it's very important that uh, you know, we continue with the, the accountability efforts. We also, as we are seeking to address some of the security elements, we also, of course, see this challenge as a health and um, mental health challenge as well. We start to uh, serve as a proactive force in the region, help medical uh, facilities and treatment facilities that are looking to combat this trade, promote better intelligence sharing between trustworthy allies and partners. Uh, we also, of course, promote better um, monitoring and uh, recording capabilities. We need to conduct more lab tests. We need to measure how Captagon's formula is changing. And then, of course, also identify how the Syrian state and how some of these non-state actors are using Captagon as an alternative revenue source, not just to fund their operations, but as a loophole with U.S. Um, sanctions and, and, and U.S. policies. Uh, I think that that is incredibly important because this is something that really, I think, is a blind spot thus far for the United States. Yeah, that's really important to talk about. And um, thank you both for your very awesome remarks. Um, I just wanted to leave the floor open to anyone who has a question. We have two microphones, um, one on the right and the one on the left, or my left and right. So if you have a question, raise your hand. Thank you, Dr. Ross, for your insightful presentation. And my question is, um, is Captagon the only drug that the Syrian government is complicit in, or like there are other drugs also? It's a great question. I would say that thus far, you know, I have I have not necessarily studied uh, the tramadol, a huge emerging challenging uh, issue in, in the Middle East, as well as of course methamphetamine. Um, but certainly uh, hashish seems to be a, a key element and something that is trafficked in conjunction with Captagon, as well as sometimes small arms uh, and, and a number of other illicit substances. But Captagon overwhelmingly is the substance that I, I really do believe that the Syrian state has had the most direct participation in production and smuggling. Yeah, I think I have learned actually uh, from my visit to the locals in northern Syria that there are might be some new substances like a new probably synthetic um, sort of uh, quote unquote advanced you know types of, of illicit drugs that are, have been used so 
probably Crypticon is the most sort of profitable, you know, brand. But I think there are uh, some. I think I learned about something. I don't, I don't think they know the name yet. But um, um, has Hasbro or something like this um, um, that actually can make people very aggressive and you know psychotic and and uh, sort of really destroy, you know, any youth quickly. Maybe you know, maybe one or two. Uh, sort of, you know, uh, consumption of, of, of that drug. So there are might there might be other, unfortunately, you know, innovative brands that might be coming our way if again if we don't somewhat control this, you know, sort of dangerous business. We have questions from online. Is there any indication that Capagon is being distributed in the United States? I can take it. Uh, sure. There's been no evidence of this whatsoever. Uh, and again, you know, there are a lot of concerns about this potentially trickling into European markets. Thus far, um, you know, the EMCDDA, the UNODC, they haven't assessed uh, any kind of consumer market in, in these areas. Potentially, of course, this, this could trickle into local consumption markets, but we haven't seen any evidence yet. I would bet, um, uh, higher odds of Captagon expanding in Africa, uh, also potentially in South Asia. Uh, but again, we're, we're really, it's still extremely prevalent in the Gulf and in the Levant. Um, some of the emerging larger consumer markets, I would say right now, are Jordan and Iraq, uh, which of course present a lot of concern. No, I, no, I agree. I, don't, I haven't heard about any, anything about the, the Captagon being in the U.S. Uh, I think Saudi Arabia, I think um, Jordan, of course, some of the European um, countries, Italy, I think, and Greek, but I haven't um, heard otherwise. Do you have any other, anyone else with a question? Do you have any other online quotes? Yeah. Um, building upon the last question, uh, is areas like uh, Ethiopia with the Tigray conflict, um, in Yemen with the Houthis uh, conflict, do we see that it's particularly war fighters are given to the young war fighters that are often drafted into that conflict? Are they the ones that are particularly being targeted with these drugs? And uh, if we have a cohesive uh, framework for trying to deal with this on an international stage, even when these conflicts are gone, we're still going to have these youths that will grow up into men that are going to be addicted. Um, is there any framework that we have for, for dealing with that, for helping them come through what will be a crippling addiction in the future? Caroline, if you want to start, and then sure. I feel like you could definitely uh, talk about a little the bit. addiction sure. element. Uh, I can talk a bit about kind of the conflict dimension of this, and this is what really inspired me to first dig into the Captagon trade was the almost exclusive association with fighters and how they enhanced enhanced fighting capabilities. It just, I think it's good to remind ourselves that Captagon, it isn't, you know, this magic pill that is going to overnight make someone better in and, and enhance their combat capabilities. It'll keep you up, and uh, definitely, if if you only have, you know, like one meal with you, it, it won't, you won't be hungry. Uh, sure, it does, of course, uh, spark this euphoric rush, but it doesn't make or break someone's combat performance. performance. Um, but still, in, in, I think, as in a lot of combat environments, uh, you know, substances are used. And this has been seen as something that does enhance 
um, slightly uh, a fighter's capabilities, uh, whether that's a stereotype or not. I, I, we can't necessarily deny the fact that it's used, especially among force division forces, uh, also, of course, among Hezbollah um, uh, fighters as well. And we've also started to see, uh, again, I've been monitoring this very closely, but there's been a lot of discussion about will this come to Ukraine, right? Will will Captagon trickle into a new conflict zone? And we've already seen a number of um, Russian-sponsored state media sites report Captagon being found with Ukrainian forces. Uh, again, none of this is verified, and, and none of this looks like Captagon, but that narrative exists. And so I think that it's always it's always possible, and if so, this definitely would mark the expansion of the Captagon trade into into Eastern Europe. I think that that would definitely would be notable, and it would be a challenge. And I would love to hear you your remarks on this, uh, because Captagon addiction and, and treatment services. I'm I'm not a medical professional, uh, but it is a bit of a tricky equation because it's not like other drugs. Um, and it's not like the rehabilitation treatments that are a bit more commonly found in the region uh, and a bit more accessible. Uh, so that's been definitely a big issue that in my discussions with the medical community, this has been something that's hard to identify. Yeah, I mean, and I, I don't claim to be the expert either you know, on addiction as a, I guess medicine or specialty per se, but from my sort of public health knowledge, and again, communicating with the, with the medical um, professionals on the ground, um, you know, there is you know a huge burden on the public health system. Um, you know, obviously from this, uh, in any sort of setup that is meant to you know help their own citizens. Again, from my own visit to the north portion of Syria, where where there are sort of mostly um, you know individuals interested in helping. You know their fellow citizens, and like the Assad-controlled area, where you know the government, you know the regime, sort of controls the whole system from top to bottom, and sort of you know manipulate it to their advantage. But um, you know where there are citizens who are willing to help their own their, their fellow citizens, they, it's a that's a huge and draining um, you know um, um, system. You know for the for the public health system for sure. I haven't heard from again communicating with with locals on the ground that they use it to. You know, make the fighters high per se to make them sort of want to fight more or you know focus more. I think it's probably um, a side effect, you know, of the war sort of you know circumstances. This might be, I guess, this might be sort of you know the modern war, you know, sort of um, style that we will you know we will learn more you know with the you know generation and other other aspects of you know new new new. Manufacturing, but this might be sort of a side effect for any youth, 18 years old or 19 years old, who's fighting and they, they have nothing else to do. They might just you know, might as might as well use that. Um, but I don't think it's systematically used, you know, by commanders to make their fighters high. But I think first because maybe just the sort of the, the age and the lack of education um, and access, of course. And I think second, oftentimes I think. The smugglers can be can be those fighters or affiliated with some of those fighters because they have you know sort of free access to all the cross borders you know points and other ways. So again, it, it just happens to be easier easier access for them and they might be exposed more easily than others. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think this is an issue that's just going to really pick up steam in the next, you know, couple of years. Hopefully there's more research. There's still a lot at play and there's still a lot that we don't know. So I think that, you know, the work of that both of you, do, you guys do on this, on Syria, it's really helpful. Um, so I just wanted to wrap it up there. Uh, but thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time out of your day to come and speak about this issue. A uh, particular shout out to Dr. Gabais, who organization Center for a, a Safe and Secure America has really helped put together this panel discussion and, and it's been sort of helpful there. And Caroline, in particular, for your wonderful work. Um, I, there, for in-person audience, there are copies out front, her executive summary, and then also the full extensive report. Feel free to pick that up. Um, it should be on the left on the exit. And then for virtual audience members, um, we'll be sending that out in a follow-up email. But thank you so much. If we could get just a quick round of applause to the panelists here today. Thank you.